What I said to him was, do you mind if I lighten the topic a bit and talk about what one can learn in times of trouble, as I've put there, and I've put it in italics because it's a quotation, and this is a test now. Does anyone know what it's a quotation from? Isn't that amazing? No one does. Even people in my generation don't. So you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you where it comes from. It comes from Paul McCartney, and it's Let It Be. And the line I particularly like is down here, and when the broken hearted people living in the world agree. So isn't that nice? So that I didn't know it was that till this morning, actually. I thought I'd better tell people where this quotation comes from, because no one seems to know, but it's Let It Be. Okay, and um, so what I think the reason that Ian invited me was because I was in Japan last year when um, the, there was a major disaster, three major disasters all joined together, and um, the combination of the disasters and the high-tech ability to film it and beam it around the world meant you all knew what was happening. Um, and uh, in fact, I'll come back later on to talk about that part of it, but I think that's why he invited me. Um, I was, of course, shocked like everyone else, and I'll tell you how it affected me at the time later on. But what many foreigners did, and it's several people who wrote to me, because they saw what was happening and heard about it, suggested I do too, is get out. Get out of Japan. Now, I was miles from what happened, and the radiation danger was just as bad in Hong Kong, but lots of students went to Hong Kong. Foreign students in Tokyo <coughs> were moved by their American universities to Hong Kong. Not British universities so much. In fact, the British ambassador did a very nice thing of pointing out how much the radiation, how you could compare it with things like a flight to New York. And a month of that radiation is equal to one flight to New York, for example. But anyway, the Japanese got, uh, were rather shocked by all the foreigners who left. Um, and the word gaijin, which means foreigner, um, they began to call them flyjin. And later on, I'll, I'll come back to being in Tokyo. when It was like the first time I went to Tokyo in 1971, there were very few foreigners. And going back this time, after the, everyone had flown, it was very similar. Very few foreigners. But I'll, I'll come back to that. So, um, so what I did instead was, well, I opened the file. Actually, I didn't open the file. I did open the file um, and saved all the emails that were flying around on the subject. But I was there doing something already. I was busy collecting information for an update of a textbook I wrote on Japan called Understanding Japanese Society. And I had plans. I had people to meet who you're going to meet because I'm going to take you to see them because saying what, what I learned. And, and I've put this about being um, an old journalist because I used to be a journalist before I was an anthropologist and um, I, it's very dangerous, as, you, as we know, from having seen what happened to Marie the other day, but um, we follow, we tend to go where there's disaster to see what's happening, to learn. So possibly that's still stuck in me even though I became an anthropologist. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk a bit about um, some experience of disasters that I've been involved in, the, only a minor way with, because I'm still here with you, um, uh, from Japan, and talk about some of the learning one can do as an anthropologist, and then a little bit of analysis at the end. So that's the plan. So I'm going to, depending on the time, you really want me to talk for... One hour. Okay, you want me to talk yes, for an hour? Yes, okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I want it because I've got a couple that aren't in here that I can talk about as well, but I've got three major ones I'm going to talk about. Um, and the first one is um, 
about a young man who I knew really quite well. And he wasn't that young by some of your standards, but he was 37. And um, he's up there. He didn't fall off the building. I know it looks as if he's about to fall off the building. But that isn't what happened. Um, he, I've got a picture of him during the time when they were building, putting that building up. He's the one with the circle. And they're just relaxing afterwards. Um, and I, you know, I knew that family quite well. I'm going to introduce it to other members of the family. And I'd gone away for a couple of days, and I was walking across the field, because I lived in the next village, um, to go into the village. And people came running out, and they said, guess what happened? And I said, I don't know. And they said that he'd fallen off a building. Actually, not the building being built, but he'd just fallen down. He, he was in his um, working location, and he fell down dead. And so we were all very shocked. And uh, what happened after that taught me a huge amount about how people think about death, how people think about the family, and so on. So what I'm going to do is go through a bit um, of what, what, what was learned by this. So I'm going to ask questions about cause of death. Um, of course, I'm, that was the first thing I wanted to know. How, why did he die? What, what caused him to die? I'll come to my fears in a minute. The consequences of the death, and there were some expected reactions which weren't there, and some surprise reactions which were there. Possible solutions, because there were various problems. Um, outcomes for the family and for the anthropologist, and then an alternative outcome, which uh, happened in another family, which I'll, I'll also tell you about. So first let me introduce you to his family. These are his three daughters. Can you see them all right? Maybe could we put that light off? Because it's a bit... Um, these are old slides, as I've put up. Oh. So they're a bit... Should have lightened that one a bit, I would say. But anyway, so the oldest one was about 13. And then 11 and then 10. And I was visiting them just a few days before uh, this happened. And um, uh, they had a cousin visiting. So there were four children. And I took four bunches of bananas to their house. And anyone who knows anything about China, Chinese and Japanese will know that four is the same pronunciation as death. So she in Japanese. So I didn't even think about it. At the time I thought there are four children, I'm taking four bunches of bananas. But when the father died, I thought, oh my God, I took four bunches of bananas. And it wasn't that I thought I actually caused the death of the man so much, although you know, I was living there and in amongst everybody and knowing about this and should have known better. And I, anyway, that, I talked to my friends, Japanese friends about it. But what I was very worried about is that they might think that I'd caused it by taking four bunches of bananas. And um, I still to this day don't know what they thought, but they were very, very nice to me, the rest of the family, for the whole time they ever saw me, as you'll, you'll see um, shortly. Anyway, this is the father of the man who died. It was a continuing family with grandparents, parents, and the three daughters. And um, my, my idea when I met everybody about it was to feel terribly sorry for the daughters, the wife, the parents for losing their son, the wife losing her husband, and the children losing. Nobody ever said that, except later on, the mother. But... Um, Everyone said, what is going to happen to the house, the, the, the house that they lived in? He was something called the Daikokubashiya, which means the main post of the house. So that's the grandfather, and he had uh, built up the house 
Well, actually, he built a new house, which you'll see in, as well in a minute. Um, he inherited the house from his parents, and his duty was to hand it on to the next generation. And he had three sons. And this son had inherited the house, and the other two sons had gone off, and they had different jobs in the city. Um, and so uh, he had to think, now what am I going to do? Because I haven't got anyone to carry on the line. And this is the line that everybody took. What is going to happen to the house? Because it's got no one to carry it on. There, was, there were these are relatively minor problems. The problems of the farm work, they were, they were farmers. He's collecting tomatoes there. They also had other things that they grew. Um, and the problem of the farm work was solved immediately because he had a group of age mates and they were the people you saw around him when he was sitting after the house building. And they turned up and they did that. So that was taken care of. That was one of the things that I learned, that age mates, and one of the things they do is they, they jump in and help out. So that was that solution. But the problem of inheritance had three parts to it. One, there was land. Two, there was a house. And three, there was the descendants. Now, the grandfather, the, the, the guy you see there, who was a very nice, cheerful man, um, had a solution. He said, what we'll have to do is we'll have to get the oldest daughter, as soon as she gets to 16, we'll have to find a husband for her, and then he can move into the house and he can inherit and take over. And um, so shocking was this to the wife, the mother of the three daughters, because people in Japan don't usually marry until they're about... There's a, there's a, there was an expression which was, um, uh, a woman is no good after... A woman is like a Christmas cake, because after the 25th it's no good, because they're made of, they've got cream in them, in it. And nowadays they've changed it to a woman is like um, something that they have on the 31st of December. So women don't, in general, get married at 16. It's, it would be very unusual. And the girl, I thought, she thought, because I wasn't there when they were discussing it, but the mother, who I did see quite a lot of, the wife of the man who died, was very shocked. And by the time I went back, I, I've got a slide which hasn't got any pictures because I couldn't, I'm sure I've got some somewhere, but I couldn't find them, so I'm sorry. Um, which was, uh, well, I went back in between as well, but I went back with my children um, several years later, and the wife and the three daughters had gone. They left, they went back to the wife's family, and the, just the grandparents were left in the house. So it was a real disaster for that house. It was quite a disaster for um, the family, because then they had... They do have these two other sons, but neither of them was willing to come back and be a farmer and doing other things. And uh, we went and stayed. In the, when the grandmother knew I was coming back with my children, she said, you come and stay in the house. So we stayed in the house for quite a long time, about a month. And the, grandparent, the grandmother seemed to love having us there, but it was always in the back of my mind, maybe she's afraid I caused this, this death. But and, and another thing I said to her, which... Well, I'll come back. I'll come to that in a second. So that, that's what happened. That was a disaster for the family. There's the house. It's still standing. It was a beautiful house. All looked after carefully. Um, and everyone just says, well, we don't know what's going to happen. It belongs to the sons. And both the people, this is a long time ago, I'm talking about my children are now in their 30s. And they, when we went there, they were four and one. So that house has just been rotting away. The grandparents died in the next few years. Um, I went to see them in hospital when they were ill. I kept in touch with them. I actually sent a message to the funeral and, and so on. So I kept in touch, but 
um, nobody has taken over. So it's the end of a house. And for Japanese people in the country, in that kind of community, it's not uncommon these days, but it is a bit of a disaster. So I've got uh, one more thing to, to, to tell you, which is that, about this situation, another house in the same village lost a man at a similar age. He um, got very drunk and fell out of window and died. And in that case, uh, the wife of the man uh, managed to find a husband, even though she also had three children. And so the husband that she found, who was, I think, related through her family, um, came, joined the house with the grandparents and three children, and he moved in, and he took over the house. So that house, actually that isn't it, but it's very similar. It's, it's doing very well. It's got still farming. That's last year. I took that picture. And that house is um, like the one. So in other words, they carried on the family line. They're doing really well. It's a village where everyone does very well. And that was a solution. So how, you wouldn't think of that. Unless something like that happened, it would be hard to imagine that the strength of that family principle and how people feel about it. And so that was basically, for, for me, what I, I learned. So I just put the learnings up, that I learned so much more about the system I was looking at, so that's what I was doing, too much, about the fact that the second and third sons, well, they'd set themselves up, and for them it wasn't an option to come back. Um, the EA means the continuing house, and Kojin means uh, the individual. So I learned about the way that people talked about the whole thing was all to do with this structure, the EA. That's how they discussed it. That's what the discourse was about. As opposed to um, the individuals being bereaved. Of course, the individual was being bereaved was very important. And that's where I learned the ideas of the afterlife because I talked to the grandmother quite a lot about losing her son, who was there seven. And I said to her one day, because I have a grandfather who used to go, well, I don't have him anymore. He died many years ago. But he used to say, the Lord takes, the only takes those young who are very good people. And he used to say this, so when someone died, because he, he was a Methodist minister, so he'd go and console people by saying, well, of course, the Lord only takes people who are very good. And she, she found this really, uh, she, I mean, there are, the ideas of the afterlife are very varied in Japan, so people have different ideas, and they also have multiple ideas. But she found this new idea that he was, she, she said, yes, he was a very good person. So it worked, and he was a very good person. Everyone said he was a good person, but what they were concerned with mostly was the problems for the house. So that's one uh, other thing I started learning, because we talk more about the afterlife because of that having happened. And then the inventive ways is what happened in the case of the family that was fine, and then I learned about the value of age base. So that's just a little summary of the things, but it, made, it gave me a much deeper understanding of how things work. That, Family is just a, a family that's still there. He's present head of the village when I was there last year. They organised a nice party, but but it's quite significant because when I take a photograph, they've got all the generations. They've got four here: so the, the grandfather um, and grandmother. Oh no, sorry. Yes, that is right. The, the person missing is the the younger person, and then there's this. No, he's the grandfather. There's the daughter-in-law. There's her son, and there's uh, the grandchildren great-grandchildren. And there at the back, all those things hanging up are things that put up as children are born. So just, just to show you the things continuing in that community. There, there's also change, but this isn't 
subjects of today's talk. <coughs> okay, so the second thing I'd like to tell you about is um, the eruption of Mount Mihara. And there's an island um, off the coast of um, Tokyo, and, and the Chiba Peninsula, where I did some more field work. And um, uh, there's a, a volcano there. If you look at it from the sky, actually, you can see it's a volcano because it's very uh, sort of typical volcanic shape with a hole in the middle and it erupts from time to time. So we were living, I was living with my children this time in uh, a place called Tateyama in the south of Chiba, the Chiba Peninsula. <coughs> and my children were at school, they were older by this time, they were eight and, um, no, that's not right, uh, seven and six and nine when we started and then seven and ten when we came back. And uh, um, they were at, um, they used to go swimming every week, and they were at the swimming pool one day, and I was in the house, writing up some notes, and the house started shuddering. The shutters started shuddering. That's a bit funny, it's not an earthquake, it doesn't feel like an earthquake, because there are plenty of earthquakes in the So I went out into the street, and my neighbours were out, and they were shuddering, everyone's houses were shuddering. So somebody went back and looked at television, put television on, and came back, and oh, it's Mount Bihara. Erupting, and lots of people around drove around the peninsula so they could see it. So some people came back with photographs like <coughs> like that because that's that's how it looked. It's amazing if you had a good enough camera to get across the water. That's what it looked like. Um, we got ash. What else did I put here? This is the the official thing about the eruptions. It's in 1986. So um, it tells you what and the things we saw on television was <clears throat> all the people who lived on the island were evacuated. And that was very interesting because you saw um, people m being moved away to somewhere near Tokyo. They were being kept in a, in a hall, a big hall, school hall. And the things they did or didn't bring with them, somebody interviewed them, what, did you bring anything with you? No, I just thought I'd be taken care of. And they were taken care of. So, so people just put themselves in the hands of the authorities who brought them out off the island where they lived <coughs> and looked after them. One or two of the children brought their school books. The school books were important. But um, it was another really interesting uh, situation to see how people react in times of disaster. You're moved from your home. That's on your island where you live. And 10,000 people got evacuated. Um, so, you know, it is possible to move lots of people. The, the, the government can cope with that. Um, now, what I've got this time is I've got a few... My son was at school. <coughs> Both of my sons were at school. Um, they have kept diaries at home. So they've made... Um, they made diaries of what, what happened. So that's a picture that somebody took of how it looked across... Um, when, when it got to daytime, at night time, you could see the red, but at daytime it looked pretty much like that. And... Um, uh, the school um, took advantage of what was happening to talk to them about how volcanoes work, and that will come up in a second. But um, the next morning, we found everything, our washing machine, which is outside, <coughs> and the, the, uh, the ground around was all covered in volcanic ash, so we got, we got sprayed with ash. He's written cat's footprints in the ash. Um, and I went off... It was in the days before digital photography, uh, with the photographs I'd taken to a local photographer's to put my 
picked by films in, and there were loads of photographs coming out of his copier of the red thing I just saw you. So I was standing in the shop looking at these photographs, and there was a major earthquake. And it was quite interesting because the guy behind his... Can you imagine a camera shop? It's all glass cases in a, in a major earthquake. It suddenly everything goes, you know, starts shuddering and the glass starts shuddering. Nothing actually fell right over. But he just went into the back and got a bunch of cushions and he told us all to put cushions over our heads. So we stood there holding cushions <laughs> over our heads for the 30 seconds or whatever it was. And that was quite interesting. Meanwhile, at the school... Um, no, I'll come back to that in a second. Back down at the school, um, the children have a training every day, or every month or so, for what to do in an earthquake. <coughs> and they have little hoods. They all have little padded hoods. So what they're supposed to do in an earthquake is put your hood on and get under your desk. That's the routine. And all the Japanese children in the school did that. My children, <laughs> untrained, I mean, they had had the training, but they thought this is awful. Each of them shot out of the building and they met in the middle of the playground because <laughs> they were in different classes. So, and I was talking to my son about it the other day when he did this diary. And he was like, oh, the building could have fallen down on me. What a silly idea to get under the desk. Which is quite ironic because that earthquake that happened in New Zealand last year in Christchurch had 29 Japanese students of English in the building. Their building fell down. And... I dare say they got under their desks, but um, so I was quite glad my kids ran out, even though they were meant to be under their desks. Anyway, the building didn't fall down, and everybody was fine. But um, the next thing that happened was there's a loudspeaker on the corner of your street in Japan, and um, <clears throat> at five o'clock it plays Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and children have to go home. That kind of thing. But when there's an earthquake, it tells you the strength of the earthquake, and um, in this case they said there's a threat of a tsunami. <coughs> so uh, this is where we live, near the sea, and uh, you can see there's a hill there, and some of the boats have been tied down, so they, they're aware of the danger of a possible tsunami. They didn't say how big it would be, they didn't know. So what we did was, um, we planned an escape route, because we there's an even taller hill than the one in the other picture. But there was a hill very close to us, and we thought, well, we'll go up the hill. So this is the hill, and at the top, you can see you're quite high. So we thought that that would be all right. And um, <clears throat> we packed a bag, and there's Jenny, who was a student of mine, who was with me in Japan at the time. And we put out, you know, we put chocolate and sweaters and drinks, bottles of water and stuff in the bags, and there we are ready <clears throat> to run. Well, eventually, they announced... Nobody else did this, by the way. Everybody else was watching telly. Oh, that's going to be all right. No, they haven't said anything. So nobody packed anything except us. But eventually, they did make an announcement. They said, the tsunami's coming. It's going to be five centimetres high. <laughs> so we all relaxed and everything was fine. But it's quite, I thought it was quite interesting that people were just putting their face in the, the announcements and not uh, doing too much more about about what they would do because we were quite near that hill so we could have, could have run. The rest of that page is just a diary. I, I couldn't get the pictures so firmly stuck on I couldn't get them off but you can see they did a serious study of volcanoes at school after that which was... I went back to Funakata which is where the little part of Katayama where we, we lived um, last year and they have actually the top map although I'm sorry I've cut off the instruction the bottom 
certainly it is. It's a tsunami escape route. So things after last, this was after last year's disaster, after the big tsunami. Because if there'd been a tsunami that size there, the whole town would have been wiped out. It was the same as, as um, Sendai. And all the other places that did get wiped out would have been wiped out. So they now have a tsunami escape route. This, not sure what that is, but it looked as though it might be the beginning of trying to build, although that's not new some higher defences, because that's right by the sea. The sea's just the other side of this, this road. But I, um, I wasn't there for very long, and everyone was very relieved that they weren't wiped out, so it was a bit difficult to make. What people do do all over the place in Japan is they have, um, they have little figures to which they give offerings all the time, and I won't start on that, because that's part of the, uh, a huge complex of religious ideas. But um, this is just one example. People everywhere you go, anywhere you go, there are um, places to make offerings, to pray, in other words. Even though, if you ask Japanese people, are you religious? Are you Japanese? If you ask Japanese people, are you religious? They usually say, oh, no, 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 not really, no. Do you believe in the Oh, no, no. Well, I might if I wanted something. I might say. Anyway, that's, that's, a, that's been written up by Ian Reader. It's not my own. People don't usually make much of it. <clears throat> so the first learning, and I haven't mentioned this yet, is nobody in the world except us in Japan knew that this was happening. So we were having these exciting earthquakes and possible tsunamis and um, <clears throat> uh, the, 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 the house shuddering. There was another earthquake in the middle of the night when our whole house, we, we were asleep and we were woken up to see our house shape like going like that. And I've got a, still got an image in my head of my son's face as he kind of go like this and then it stops and I was quite glad we were in a Japanese house because they're built to do that they do that but most Japanese houses do that um, but nobody at home knew so nobody was worried about us and you know we had all this and then we had to write letters and tell people about what happened <coughs> so, so nobody actually cared really oh, we had a volcano oh fantastic great actually I did get asked to write I did. I, get, I was a student at Lady Margaret Hall when I was here as a student, and they've got a book of ex-students' writings. And the guy who did it, um, no, hang on, that can't be right. The woman who did it, because there were more women in those days. Um, no, sorry, forget that. It was a different book. I did get asked to write something for that. <clears throat> but it's another book of collection of things, and somebody chose from one of my books the description of this volcanic happening. Rather than anything, it wasn't an LH, it was a person writing, collecting about Japan. So there's that. The Japanese trust in the authorities, I was very um, impressed by at that point, that how much people, I mean, I know that this isn't what was reported this time, and I'll come back to that shortly, but at that time, people were very willing to just, okay, they say it's not going to be this, they say it's not going to be that, so they were fine. The casual reaction to the earthquake in the camera shop, because they're so used to earthquakes that you just need a cushion in case something falls off the ceiling. Um, running out isn't necessarily a good idea. <clears throat> and then people's lack of preparation compared with our packed bag, as I thought. Okay, and then uh, that's so that's that second one. Um, there was a big earthquake, as you probably all know, uh, um, a few years ago in Kobe. And um, there's been quite a lot written about what happened at the time of the big earthquake in Kobe, because they weren't expecting one. The reaction from the government was quite slow. 
um, and people got very upset about that. So that trust in the government, which um, had happened 10 years ago, began to break down, I think, at the time of the Kobe earthquake, if not before. Probably that. Lots of people wrote that they were expecting to be taken care of, and it took an awful long time for anyone to do anything. And so that was, that was one soft reaction after Kobe. The second thing was that, um, as you might expect, people turned out to help each other. So when somebody had got a problem, they would, you know, if their house was falling down, people would invite them in. Or if someone had no food, people, people turned out to help people they didn't know. Now, that might sound like a natural thing to do, but it wasn't a very natural thing in Japan up until then. And, in fact, people have written about volunteering, right, that Japanese people until that time weren't very keen on volunteering unless they knew who they were volunteering to help. So they wouldn't e very easily go out and volunteer to help some children in Africa unless they had some link with Africa, but they were very happy to volunteer for the local community. And that. So that, that was another thing. After this Kobe earthquake, when people turned out to help strangers that they hadn't expected to be helping, um, there was quite a lot written about it being the birth of the civil society in Japan. And there's a huge amount of literature about civil society in Japan that puts its finger on Kobe 1995 as the beginning of, of, what, of what has happened. And I won't go into details because 16 years later, which is last year, um, I went to Kobe and I was stunned by how beautiful Kobe is. I'd been to Kobe before but not since the earthquake. And there's a huge amount of beautiful building and the city's really been regenerated and looks amazing. It's, it's, uh, before it was kind of... It, there used to be a lot of trade between Kobe and Liverpool. And um, the, some of the buildings in Kobe reminded me of the Lido building and other buildings in Liverpool. And Liverpool's a bit, or at least when I was going there often because my husband was in there, the, um, the, the lots of the buildings were looking a bit tatty, and Kobe was a bit like that too. And they reminded me of each other. Kobe is now, and I know Liverpool's been rebuilt as well, a lot of it. Amazing. And the other thing that's happened, and I, there's a guy um, called Ogawa who's, um, who came and gave a talk at Brooks recently, and he's written a book um, about uh, civil society. Does anyone know this book? It's something like um, The Death of Civil Society, or Is Civil Society... It's questioning the idea that civil society has actually taken off in a big way in Japan. So the, all the interpretations of the birth of civil society are now beginning to be questioned, and looking at, people are looking at things in a different way. So the big changes may... You know, it takes a long time to see how they work, in other words. I won't give you all that, that detail. <clears throat> Okay, so coming now to the latest disaster, what has been called the Great Tohoku Disaster, um, I'll tell you a bit about what I was doing. I was sitting on a train when it happened, and I was between um, uh, Kanazawa, where there was almost no threat whatsoever, and Kansai, which is the middle of Japan. Um, Tohoku, this is a map of Japan, Tohoku's up here, Kansai's down here. So there was no effect, no immediate effect. Um, and uh, actually the train I was on stopped <coughs> and stayed for six minutes without moving and uh, I didn't listen to the announcement because I was reading a book and I wasn't really interested in why the train had stopped at the time <coughs> but the doors opened and there was a really weird feeling outside and I thought to myself, and I can remember this 
this is about all I remember about it, thinking that there's a weird feeling, it feels this is going to be an earthquake, maybe there's about to be an earthquake. And then I carried on reading my book and the thing closed and off we went. Well, and then I got to Kyoto, very quite near to Kyoto, a place called Otsu, and my student, um, uh, a student I was going to, well, he came to meet me because he had my post, he was collecting my post. So he met me off the train and he said, I've got your post, I've left it at home, let's go up and get it. So we went to his house, which was in a place called Hiedaira, which is up on the hill. Neither of us knew anything about what had happened yet. <coughs> went into his house, I turned my lap, the computer on to get my emails, because he had Wi-Fi, and there was everybody going, I'm all right, what's happening? My two sons were on Skype, conversing with each other about, she thinks she's Godzilla, she's not getting in touch with but they were really worried because you could see what was happening all over the world. And Bruce put his television on and he could get BBC and the Japanese television and we switched between. So he could see what you were all seeing if you were watching it here. My, one of my sons was in Scotland, the other was in Switzerland. They could all, we could all watch people's livelihoods and lives being washed away by the tsunami. You could see the, re the reaction immediately as, and as it was happening, it was live. So there must be people in helicopters filming as cars were washed. There was a guy with, in one kind of, if you remember this, flashing his lights and tooting his horn. Apparently he was alright, I think he managed to get away, but it was just horrific. And they stayed on Skype for the whole, for about 45 minutes. And they were going, where are you? Where are you? What kind of a place are you in? So I said, well I'm at Bruce's, it's on the hill, don't worry. Because all the time this was happening on the Japanese TV, there was a picture of Japan and there were danger, tsunami danger, flood um, warnings all around, except Kanazawa where I just left, pretty much everywhere. And it was around where I was, but at the sea, and I was on the hill. So I said, well, he's on the hill, I said, don't move, don't go anywhere near the sea. <laughs> they were just instructing me, and I was saying, Bruce, can I stay here tonight? Because I did have a plan to go down to stay with some people who you will see in this house, which is about uh, two minutes walk from a, a river, which is very close to the sea. And when I told them I was about to go there, they said, no, no, you can't move, Mum, don't move. <laughs> we don't want you to be washed away. I was quite touched, actually, that they cared that much about me. <coughs> anyway, so this is what then happened. The disaster's taken place. Uh, everyone over Japan knows what's happened, and I'll talk to you a bit about some of the reactions, because that's that's all I can do. I mean, I, I was um, called by Radio Oxford, and I said, well, I don't, can't tell you anything. I was sitting in a train, I don't know anything, and, and couldn't really answer, but it was, uh, as, as you know, everyone around the world was watching. So Kansai life goes on. People in Kansai, this family, they'd been waiting for me to come and stay with them. Um, we arranged it about... Well, I, was, I was staying with Bruce at one time and they came over and they said you've got to come and stay with us we want to see you and nothing some three weeks before three or four weeks before a month before so they were waiting they had all these plans and so when I called them and said I'm going to stay at Bruce's tonight because I, could, I just couldn't make myself say because we're high and you're down by the river um, and they were saying well bring Bruce over you know maybe Bruce would like to come have dinner and they were so concerned that I wasn't getting there um, so I kind of said, well, look, I'll tell you what, come in the morning. And in the morning, the great threat to that part had eased off. If you remember, there were threats to Hawaii, actually, in all Pacific Islands. It was, it was really widespread. So anyway, so the next morning we went down and I joined them and um, 
um, went out. This is this is um, the the family. We went out. We did just the ordinary things you do with kids because they've got two little kids, as you can see. But here's number one thing that I learned. My this this is a very good friend. She's the daughter of the family I live next door to in Kyushu when I was there for a year doing my first field work. Every time I go back to Kyushu, I stay with that family. That the, the other parents are coming to visit me um, in May this year, and they've never been before, so I'm really excited. <coughs> but she she's been to England, she's been to Oxford, she's been to my place in Scotland, and she's I know her really well. And um, what I didn't know though is, and I'm going to tell this next story. I've known these people all this time, and I didn't know she is a volunteer. So in the case of great nuclear disaster radiation problems, she is ready to run. So if there had been a need around Fukushima, which was the next big disaster when the Fukushima power plant blew up, she would have uh, been ready to go and treat people and help people. So had that disaster affected lots of people, which it didn't, um, at least not in the short term, she would have had to go. And so she told me that. One of the reasons she had, she's in that situation, she's signed up for that, is because her brother is a doctor who specialises in the treatment of radiation sickness. And her brother, who is quite a lot younger than she, her brother's about, because um, uh, I've known her brother since he was two, so uh, I don't, we don't have this calculation, but anyway, he's a medic who specialises in radiation sickness. But the very sad thing is that because of that, he's been spending an awful lot of time in Fukushima, and he's a, a newly married man who I'm sure would like to have babies, but that's a long-term worry, um, that uh, there's still this low-grade radiation. So, but I'll come back <coughs> to that part in a minute. Because then, um, I learned a lot more about this family. The person you've just seen in the previous picture is sitting there on the right. And this was also last year when I was staying with the family, when I went back to Kyushu to visit everybody and picture you saw of the, the family with all the hangings. Um, I was staying with them and I arrived on the day of the funeral of this lady's mother and she's in that picture. And in fact I spent the whole time staying there sleeping on this floor in, with her. Um, and, but I arrived on the day of the funeral and these people were local relatives but everybody else, these long long tables, had come from Hiroshima. Now, I didn't, I knew the grandmother, I knew that the mother, I know the story of this family quite well, I won't give you all the details, but what I didn't know is that the grandmother came from Hiroshima. What I did know was that the daughter had not married until quite late, and um, this is very significant. If, if you were born to a person who, was, who had been living in Hiroshima at the time of the atomic bomb, you were not a good person to marry because there's a fear that the, the effects of the atomic radiation will come through in the next generations. So this wife, who you see there, is not the mother of this daughter, um, or the other daughter, there's another daughter, because their mother died. And so this man has had two wives, this is his second wife. She is the mother of the son, who became a doctor and specialised in radiation sickness. And he said to me, he was very sweet, he said... I suppose I could tell you it was because of my grandmother coming from Hiroshima and my mother not marrying until late and because of the radiation. He said, but actually it was a bit of an easy option and not many people wanted to do it. <laughs> He's, typical Japanese, that play down the, 
the reason why he's got this position. He works in Nagasaki now. He lives in Nagasaki. So he's nowhere near. Nagasaki's at the other end of Japan. Tohoku's up here. He's nowhere near the Fukushima um, radiation, but he's, he's been going there ever since. to make. They set up an ER room. And I was able to find out after the disaster what was going on by Skyping him. He's on Skype. So yeah, we set this room up, but so far we've had nobody. They set it up two or three days after. And, and, and the, thing, so the thing that people are worried about is this low-level radiation over a long period that's still coming out there. Anyway, so I learned about this family that, um, that she'd married late because her mother came from Hiroshima, that all these other things about the family that I hadn't known. Um, for me, my, my trip still had quite a lot of things to do, and although people were trying to persuade me to leave as I said, and the next place I went to is Hokkaido, and I was with another very old friend who's also been in Oxford, this one here, who's a lecturer in nursing. And these two women are actually professors of nursing in a Japanese university, two women on the left there, and they um, had a conference. And I'd arranged with my friend to go up to Hokkaido because I was doing this sort of round all round Japan research. <coughs> and the thing that we discovered there is that not many people were travelling. And this is actually the main thing that I learned that I think was new that I didn't know before, which is that the way that many people in Japan expressed sympathy with what had happened in Tohoku, if they weren't there, was by um, not doing something nice they'd planned. So they, it, it's a kind of self-restraint. So people who planned to go to Hokkaido on holidays, go skiing, it's a very nice place to go skiing, to go and visit things, cancelled their trips. And people in Hokkaido were saying, it's terrible, there's no one coming here, we're, we're losing out, we get a lot of our income from tourism, people aren't here. So that was a, a touristy place that, that we went to. In this, we went to, uh, so life goes on, they had still had the conference. Well, this was a restaurant where we were having dinner after the conference. One of the people didn't come to dinner because she felt that was, these two had to eat because they'd come from other cities and I had to eat. <clears throat> they were still serving the lovely fish that they served there in the restaurant. But the local person didn't come because she said, oh, I don't think I can go with all the disaster. I feel bad about going out and enjoying myself. So then, I, after staying in Hokkaido and doing what I did in Hokkaido... Oh, the other thing that happened in Hokkaido, just to go back for a second, you don't need the picture, but just so you don't get distracted, <coughs> is that within a couple of days, it was only a couple of days after when I was in Hokkaido, um, they'd already worked out enough um, accommodation to take people who, if, in case they got evacuated from Fukushima. So had they thought that radiation, or also the, the people who'd lost their homes. So that in Hokkaido they got already, within a couple of days, information available for people who had to be evacuated. Okinawa is miles away, it's the other end of Japan, and I was in Okinawa, for the next part of the trip I planned, and I have to say that I felt quite pleased to be that high. I put that left-hand picture in just to show you where my hotel was, miles from the sea, because one was still worried about you know, that awful tsunami, if you're near the sea. And I was quite high. Um, the people who I met in Okinawa, because I was in a hotel where tourists go, were all people with small children. And they were, a lot of them had come from Tohoku because they wanted to get their children out of the range of the radiation. Otherwise, the hotel said everyone's cancelled. Same sort of thing. 
So there weren't many tourists then. If there were, they had small children. And this person on the right here is he's another of my another student of mine with his newly born baby. I just put that there to remind me to mention the, the children. But he was he was helping with the research. <coughs> okay, I've nearly finished. So when um, uh, um, when I was in Okinawa, I had there's an amazing thing that ANA, the airline does, which is if you're over 65, which I am, you can get really cheap flights if you turn up on the day. It's like the old standby system. <laughs> and so I had no ticket, but I knew that the next place I was going was Tokyo because I'd arranged to stay with some very old friends. And I called them. And, I, and Tokyo at this point had daily, uh, because of the power, nuclear power, I mean, yeah, the Fukushima power station provides a lot of power to Tokyo. Um, that everyone was having to put their power off for several hours a day. People were worried about the radiation affecting the water. Um, and I was sitting in Okinawa thinking, God, it's nice here. Do I really want to go to Tokyo? And, and I called my friends and they said, we're waiting for you, Joy. We're expecting you. I have to say that somebody wrote, actually an anthropologist wrote to me while this was going on. I said, are you coming out of Japan, Joy? And I wrote back and said, no, my Japanese friends can't leave. You know, they're expecting me. Why, why should I? Which, is what I think I thought. These people in Tokyo are people I've known for longer than anyone in Japan. And they were waiting for my visit. And um, I said, well, I've got this ticket. I can come any time. Let me know when it's a good time. Well, you're supposed to be coming on Friday, they said. We've got you in the diary. <laughs> We've got stuff to do. It's Aiko's birthday. Things like that. So, um, so I got my on the plane and I arrived and before I left I saw this announcement by the British ambassador saying about the radiation being only the same as a flight to New York, the amount of radiation in a month. So I got off the plane and my friend was there to meet me and he said, you've come to Tokyo. He said, all the other foreigners have left. I said, don't worry, it's all right, everything's fine. The British ambassador's just been on the TV, so don't need to worry. So we had a laugh and we carried on laughing and you know, well, what could you do when your power's off for several hours a day, when there are four or five aftershocks a day, put the aftershocks up there. You have to. And we got to their house, people were still worried about water, at the same time as the delivery of water was coming from their relatives in Kansai, where I'd been in the first place, because the water's fine there. And the delivery trucks, which ply all over Japan to take things, quite big things, um, were working fine. So, you know, water's dangerous, we'll get water delivered from somewhere else. People were immediately responding and doing, doing things. There's, there's my friend, my friend who met me. Um, that's him and his wife, whose birthday it was, who, uh, who, which I would miss if I didn't turn up in time. Um, now, we went around, I said we went around Tokyo and saw no foreigners. She'd, she's, she's, oh, actually, there's one more thing about her birthday first. She was planning to go to Greece. She booked a holiday in Greece with two friends, and they cancelled it. And she said, I wouldn't have cancelled it because I can't see any help from people in Tohoku. But the other two said, we can't go and have a nice holiday in Greece when there are all these people suffering, when there are people who have died and they've lost their So they didn't go to Greece. Um, but I have to say that she's a bit different from that. <clears throat> so what they had planned was, this was one of the things, she's a teacher. And this group of teachers had arranged to go on a walk of, around Tokyo to look at various things. It was just one of the things they do in the holidays, which is why I was there on those days. And, um, uh, sorry, I know you've got to leave at 12. I am instantly going to finish. 
So we walk around Tokyo. These people I'll tell you about later. Um, you can read this because this is what um, the, the BBC was all over Japan. There were BBC reporters, ten of them. One of my English friends in Japan who didn't leave either but was out in the country said, do they realise that this is a disaster zone and having, they're having to be supported? Um, everybody became a Japan expert, including the guy from Radio Oxford who rang me. And the, the guy from Temple University, who was quite young, said, this is going to change Japan forever. Okay, so my longer and broader view is that Japan suffers major earthquakes, people are trained to be ready, it's rebuilt Tokyo Kobe, it suffers tsunami, although this was enormous and had live coverage around the world. It's also suffered from nuclear disaster. The truth is that they should have been better prepared at the Fukushima power plant, but um, the extraordinary coverage and worldwide interest is one of the things that made it an extraordinary, hugely extraordinary event. The foreign responses continue. There are endless academic conferences. I've been to several already. There's one coming up at Nissan. People have got books coming out. There's, as you know, TV programs too last week. Uh, this week, actually, I think they were. Um, Tohoku continues the reconstruction and lots of people in Japan are now going there people, jet teachers for example just finishing their year apparently a whole lot are going up to volunteer to help with the rebuilding in Tohoku you, you just no, somebody just told me wasn't it? Um, and Japan, the Japanese embassy is trying to get people to help to attract foreign students because still the business of the foreigners not wanting to go there is continuing despite the fact that uh, much of Japanese life is continuing as normal. But one big, big change, which I think has happened, and this was triggered by Kobe, is that Japanese, for many, many years, I couldn't get anyone to talk about politics. They go, oh, it'll just happen. People that I was talking to all over the place would go, oh, you can't do anything, politicians. But this time, last year, there was a new government in power, and... Um, uh, Following the, the reaction, people are, in fact, taking much more interest. And in my book, Understanding Japanese Society, for once I could write my own chapter about politics because I'd talked to so many people, rather than have political scientists do it for me. Thank you.